Meet Andrew O'Hagan. He's a Scottish writer, and he's written a novel told from the perspective of a dog. And not just any talking dog, but Marilyn Monroe's talking dog. Our correspondent met with Andrew O'Hagan. Andrew O'Hagan wore a suit. Our correspondent didn't wear a suit. This is their conversation. Andrew O'Hagan, who is most recently the author of, let me see if I have this right, The Life and Opinions of Moff the Dog and His Friend, Marilyn Monroe. Well right? done, yeah. Good. Well fantastic. Done. Fantastic. Okay, well, first off, how are you doing? I'm very well. It's great to be here in New York. Yes. Good to be talking to you. Good to talk um, to you, too. I love coming to New York, and, um, you know, as, as uh, listeners will be able to tell, um, it's not the quietest place in the world, but it is uh, one of the most delicious, I find. Oh, yeah, delicious. But I, I wanted to actually try to approach your book from a slightly different tack. I want to get to the dog narrative mode in a bit, but I, I wanted to remark upon tragedy and comedy, which is a, a big aspect of this book. Midway through this book, there's a lengthy dialogue in the Lee Strasberg Theater, uh, the uh, studio, in which Strasberg claims, and Shakespeare knew that comedy, if anything, was a raising of the tragic to meet the dimensions of the truly human. Now later, at a cocktail party, uh, the book takes on the form of theatrical dialogue, a play as it were, and you have Lionel Trilling say, tragedy's function is to prepare us, to inure us as human beings, as a society, even to what we may experience as the pain of life. So something similar sentiments to what's in the Matthew Arnold volume. Yeah. Um, now, your book makes the aesthetic uh, choice to raise the tragic uh, through the comic narrative mode. Um, I'm wondering if the efforts by these various pedagogical figures is uh, sort of a, a way to kind of com have the, the reader aware of this balance between the tragic and the comic? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think that in some ways comedy is the uh, most familiar and somehow friendliest way to access uh, the tragic aspects of life. Um, they just seem to me like flip sides of the same coin, which is why Shakespeare is so dazzling, because he seems to be able to go between the comic and the tragic without intermission or um, any sort of um, change of of his essential writing tone. Um, for me, this was always a book with a very tragic centre. Uh, we know that whatever else uh, Maff the Dog is as a book, I'll use the shortened version of the title. That's no problem. Um, I'm not going to ask you for the ten <laughs> word, so words every time. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, in, in that uh, book, any reader knows that it has a sad end, that this beautiful young actress died age 36, even if you don't know that, you know she died young. Um, so there's no escaping, uh, my, for my narrator, the fact that there's a sad story at the center of this. But I wanted to, in some sense, teach the reader and the narrator uh, how to experience comedy and tragedy at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's how Marilyn experienced her life, by the way. Um, she was a very funny lady. Yeah. And at the same time, she was aware of acute pain since early childhood. Um, but that became a kind of gift uh, or an example about how to write the book itself. I wanted this book to somehow tread very carefully between tragic and comic modes, mutually reinforcing each along the way. I think, in a sense, the book's uh, more tragic because of the comedy and more comic because of the tragedy. Yeah. You know, they, they somehow reinforce each other. But why do you need a whimsical medium such as Moff the Dog 
his perspective. Assuming, of course, that it is in fact his perspective, mm. uh, why must you have this really whimsical device be steeped down or burrowed down to some degree by what is clearly tragedy and what well, is also well because there's tragedy. a lot. The, the answer to that is straightforward. I think there's a long tradition of it, and it's a really lively tradition in all our literatures. Um, they're at the very root of the European novel. If we're talking about Cervantes, um, or Jonathan Swift uh, as a writer, or Lawrence Stern, um, is an incredible interest in what it might be like to look at human beings and their morality from another creature's point of view. Yeah. So you have the talking horses in Gulliver's Travels. Uh, you have a wonderful early uh, novella by Cervantes called La Colloquia de los Perros, The Conversation of the Dogs. And in my own country's tradition, Scotland, you have Robert Burns and his two dogs, two dogs conversing about the political situation uh, in Ayrshire in the 1790s. Uh, um, these are, the, this is a very lively tradition to me. It's political, it's satirical. Um, it may also be, as you say, whimsical, um, but that's a risk you take. It seems more whimsical to our age, I think, than to any other, yeah. because we have somehow uh, over-rationalized our sense of the world. Uh, we're, over, we're kind of doped up on science at the moment, and it seems almost unacceptable to us that creatures might have a more superior consciousness than we would like them to have. Yeah. I like the idea that they're listeners and that they have um, absorption capabilities. Um, so I wanted to write a book in which the dog was cleverer than the people around him. Um, because that's how satire and how I think wonder and magic can work in a novel. And after all, uh, novels aren't just always transcriptions of reality. Sometimes they are questionings of reality, little pockets of wonder. Yeah. And that's the kind of book I knew this was. But it is interesting, you want to have the dog smarter than everybody else in the book. And this leads me to ask you about the footnotes in this. I mean, from a formalistic standpoint, well, we view dogs at our feet, and the footnotes, of course, reflect that, yeah. that particular... Yeah, I mean, a dog's uh, always going to love footnotes yeah. because they can identify exactly. with the position. Um, but initially, many of these footnotes are there to clarify little cultural tidbits, almost gossip, like what is Douglas Sirk's real name? Yeah. Uh, but as we read the footnotes more, they then become very concerned with clarifying specific facts, almost in a, in a hectoring tone towards the reader. Um, I'm curious about how the footnotes came to be from, from just this uh, tonal uh, shift that goes throughout the book. And also, um, if, uh, if you were tempted to allow the footnote to go maybe further than eight lines at any point. I mean, what did you do to kind of keep that down? I mean, oh, well, I, I, it's yeah. interesting that, you know, if I had my own way, if I lived in a world of pure O'Haganism, yeah. then uh, the, the footnotes would have gone on for volumes. Oh, yeah? I would have had a sort of Shandian yeah. or Borghesian nightmare in which uh, the footnotes were longer than the book itself. Yeah. Um, I like the comic potential and that sort of thing, and I like, I like the idea that this was a work of bricolage, as the French would say, that it was an attempt to build up phenomenon in the reader's mind, which um, you know, could increase their confidence about what consciousness was. Because after all, this was this is really a book where I um, inventing a notion of consciousness for for an animal. Yeah. You know, I built it up from the ground up, and he does say early in that process of uh, of life for him, early in the book, 
when he's still in England, he says, dogs love digression. So it made it natural to me that at some point he would start to deploy the footnote, which is nothing if not a little uh, contained digressionette. Um, I like the idea that he would occasionally stop the narrative in order to point something out to the reader, wag, wag a finger or a paw, and uh, give a notion of uh, other worlds of knowledge which might be available, uh, maybe worth pointing towards. He's a friendly little scholar as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, he's a pedant too. And all these things are, uh, are exciting character traits of his to me. So I had to make him stay in character, and it would be in his character to offer footnotes, even ones that were hectoring or were strictly unnecessary. They add to the entertainment value overall, I feel. Yeah, but to go back to what we were discussing earlier about the comedy versus the tragedy and yeah. how this reflects human life, early on in the book, Moff says in one of these footnotes, unlike humans, we can hear what people are saying to themselves and we can sniff illusion. Uh, later, you have Moff writing, the real difference between humans is that some care about authenticity and some don't care at all. Why must the humans in this book be so tied or interconnected with authenticity and illusion? Because I think it's an utterly uh, 20th century obsession. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference between some mid 20th century obsession, particularly with Hollywood, you know, having held such a position in cultural life the world over, American uh, movie making sort of created a sensibility in the 20th century. It didn't just reflect sensibilities, it actually created a mindset a notion of natural human behavior and democracy, which I think was often illusory too, but then it, uh, it, was, it was very attractive to the world, very viable. And I knew that this dog was going to be having its life at the center of that. So wanted these questions, um, illusion and reality, uh, illusion dipping into delusion, I mean, a condition of being, uh, you know, overwhelmed by fakery almost, to be something that the dog uh, had an inside view on. An inside view for a number of reasons. One of which is that he's a novelist at heart. Yeah. And that novelists really know what illusion is all about. You are, you are a conjuring artist as a novelist. You're playing God with lives and experiences and parts of history and uh, vocality and uh, patterns of speech. You know, you are a, you're a trickster. And... I think that I've always been interested in that uh, fact and I wanted this little avatar of mine, this little novelist Monkey, Maff the Dog, to be somebody who could look at uh, not only the world of Hollywood and psychoanalysis and politics in the early 60s from, uh, from an insider's point of view, which Maff certainly had. The real dog was in all of those worlds with Marilyn at the time. So he was a real figure who had very, very deep experience of illusion. Uh, and I wanted to sort of manipulate that uh, for the reader to present an opportunity to look at the relationship between reality and imagination um, in a fresh way. I mean, one of the backbones of this book, one of the influences, his name comes up a couple of times in the book, but as a sort of influence on Marth's mentality and mine was the American poet Wallace Stevens. Yeah. He was obsessed with the relationship between imagination and reality, how they augmented and enlivened each other. The, the real was more real when the imagination was applied to it. Yeah. And the imagination was nothing without the, the ground bed of reality. And 
that's an um, that's a paradox that I've always loved, and I think readers love it too. We deal in it all the time. You know, we deal in it in so many forms of culture. How about Lionel Trilling's sincerity and authenticity? Were you informed in the writing of this novel by some of those literary criticism and philosophical texts? Or anything I think like I must have at some, some conscious level because yeah. it's years since I read some of those books, but I was very impressed by the way that, um, although one can point to any number of areas of excellence in the mid-century arts in America, one forgets to mention that the critical world in America was fantastically uh, high-powered at that time. That you could point to six critics without making any effort who were world-class and who were reshaping our understanding of poetry, the novel, the drama, um, of expression in the literary form as an aspect of psychology, um, having a relationship with psychoanalysis, and with the main thrust of ideas coming out of Europe at that time too. The American critics, and I'm talking about, of course, you mentioned Lionel Trilling, but Alfred Kazin, you know, Irving Howe, Wilson, know, uh, yeah. yeah, Edmund Wilson, of course, uh, a great number of them actually. Um, there's easily 10 first rate world critics operating in New York in 1961, around about the time the novel is set. So I wanted to bring them in to the great Hogarthian picture yeah. uh, and allow them their, their moment in, this, in the sun of this novel, at least, because they did have a, a vast influence. I remember talking to Norman Mailer once about the period and him saying, you know, that one of the great changes between that period in the 50s and 60s in America and today is that the critic had enormous power and influence in his youth. He said he, all he wanted to do was to impress Lionel Trilling. But, you know, he felt that these guys had mighty minds and enormously, uh, you know, a tactile relationship with the culture around them uh, and the politics around them. And today it would be hard to point to three critics, never mind ten, uh, who had that position um, and who influenced writer, writers in their creativity as well as reflecting that creativity for the common reader. Yeah. But... I'm curious why you felt that Marilyn Monroe's story was best told through, say, this kind of gatekeeper viewpoint, as well as the dog's viewpoint. These are two very interesting points of oscillation with which to, to zero the needle in on what's going down yeah. here with, with Marilyn Monroe. So why, why, why these two in particular? It's that kind of story. Yeah. Marilyn was a completely invented figure in some respects. She's a figure of confection. Um, she was a figment of her own imagination as well as the cultures, and is still so today. A different culture, perhaps, or a, certainly an older, uh, longer-in-the-tooth culture now, but still we're obsessed with that figment, that girl. And there have been more books written about Marilyn Monroe than about any other female in history. We're now up to something like 780 volumes have been written on yep. that woman. A woman who lived uh, to the age of 36, uh, made no more than 30 films, um, was thought in her own day to be rather a, you know, underwhelming actress, but rather a vivid personality. But yet she's become more written about than Elizabeth I, Florence Nightingale and Eleanor Roosevelt put together. Yeah. And one has to ask the question, why? 
Is it because she was a mythic archetype of a kind that chimes with our sense of fear, dread, joy, opportunity, optimism, sexual freedom? What? And in what order? And why? And a novelist might still see him or herself as the person who's in a position to begin to open that up. But you have to do it through invention because it's about invention. Yeah. And you have to, in a sense, connect one protein in the DNA strand with another. Yes. You, you need to wrap the double helix around itself. It only attracts itself. And that's my view of why a novelist is the right person to try and build that picture, build that organism. The only way to understand someone who has been so well documented is by reframing these amino acids within the form of complete fabrication. You feel that's Complete. the only way to Completely. really get at the what an icon is? You put it very, very well. That's yeah. exactly what it is. There's no point in journalistically explaining Marilyn Monroe. Plenty of people have tried, from Norman Mailer to Gloria Steinem, and you know a thousand French theorists and critics in between. Uh, you can't do it with the use of a biopic. You can't do it um, simply within the confines of your own head. I think a novelist is strangely positioned. And here I stick up for the novel as a form. As an artistic form, there's nothing quite like it because it marries a certain degree of psychological awareness into a cultural and emotional uh, tenderness, I would say. Yeah. And within that, it can invent life. It can imagine uh, states of being. It's a wonderful little moral machine, a novel. Yeah. And within that, you can manipulate the gears and operate uh, the, 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 uh, the mechanics so as to actually do some new thinking, produce something fresh. And I believe that Marth the dog, this little uh, mute being that she carried around with her for the last two years of her life, was uniquely placed as a little avatar, as a little um, vehicle of invention to really see her. She once said that though men exploited her and women judged her, only the dog loved her. And that's a very touching phrase, I think, and it inspired me to imagine what it was that the dog would see. That shouldn't be, on, be beyond the bounds of the novel. It never was in the past. Yes. Sometimes we get stuck in a sort of social realistic rut with the novel and imagine that it isn't quite speaking to us unless it's speaking to us in terms that we already find familiar. But I would argue more ambitiously for the form than that and say that it's a trap to always look to be reassured by culture. Yeah. Reassurance is a very easygoing but sometimes blinding uh, emotion. Sometimes being confused or challenged by a work of art is, is, is much more, uh, you know, much more to the point and much more useful. Well, here's the question. I mean, you have a career of flitting between fiction and nonfiction. Do you require some kind of creative reassurance by having such an arsenal of nonfiction facts at your disposal with relation to Moff, a real dog, of course, and Marilyn and all these other figures who you have delved into within this book? I don't know if it's so much reassurance, although, of course, it might be. Um, it might be just a sort of prop or some sort of uh, psychic um, you know, crutch. I doubt it in a way because um, I've always been completely relaxed about the relationship between you know, uh, observable facts and imagined things. In fact, I've always been interested in a writer in the sort of flux between the two. Uh, the the semi-permeable nature of their relationship has always been 
exciting for me. Um, it never made me anxious that the aforementioned Norman Mailer's Executioner's Song was yeah. a very beautifully imagined novel in which everything was fundamentally true. He tried to come up with a phrase for that, of course, the non-fiction novel. It, does, it doesn't seem to me to need uh, a new uh, you know, uh, designation. It's simply a novel. It's a certain kind of novel. And Flaubert himself, perhaps the king of a certain kind of modern psychological novel of precision. Um, if you go to a certain cemetery in Rie in Normandy and look through the gravestones, you'll eventually come to one that marks... Uh, a certain Delphine Delamere, who was uh, a doctor's wife in 1850, who had an affair with a local individual and died by her own hand uh, after the affair was revealed. Uh, someone has scratched out her name on that particular gravestone and written Emma Bovary. Yeah. And that's always stuck in my mind that, you know, whether it be the Alexander Selkirk who stood behind Robinson Crusoe as, as a tale or whether it be Delphine Delamere or Gary Gilmer, behind the Gary Gilmer that Norman Mailer presented, we're always in a complicated relationship between what we observe and record and what we manufacture uh, as fictioneers. Uh, it's a very exciting relationship. We don't get anxious about it when we think about poets. Poets lift and leave reality and true life, as it were, as pleases them, and so sometimes the filmmakers. But somehow we expect the novelist to be more um, descriptive of his process than that, which I'm happy to be, but um, I think it is, there's less anxiety in it than there is in the part of some critics. Yes. I, I, speaking of, of this issue of competing mediums, I, I do want to ask you about how you devised a lot of the uh, interconnected banter among the animals in this. Uh, you have Mexican cats who are speaking in poetry. Yeah. You have uh, a rat who tells Moff, hey, get lost. Yeah. Um, any particular conscious scheme here to ensure that every single animal talked in, in an exclusively different vernacular or what seems to me almost a different medium? You no, know, it was important to me, uh, you know, to get, to get the absolute tone for that animal and then find the form that suited the tone. So, for example, you mentioned one of those French cats. Um, of course, you mentioned the Mexican cats. It seemed to me right that those Mexican cats would... Uh, would have a rather languorous, uh, but also rather precise, at the same time, uh, poetic dialogue. Uh, all cats, as you know, speak in poetry, so yeah. it would be one of the poetic forms, and they would be influenced by one or other poet, perhaps. I thought those cats were visceral realists in training. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> perhaps so. And I was concerned that they, that they should sound like William Carlos Williams because they had a certain uh, imagist tone to them. They were surrounded by these uh, market stalls and a lot of bric-a-brac and they'd have a big sense of material things, these cats. And William Callis Williams is such a beautiful poet of the actual, uh, transformed by the human mind. Uh, there is, a, in fact, a, a, one poem of him, his, I think it's just called Poem, which features a cat stepping over a plant pot that has fallen over. And it's very simply and decisively rendered, this poem. And I wanted those cats to have that mentality. I just found it in their tone, you know, that where they were in life, living in this Mexican uh, bazaar, seemed to me that they'd have that style. Equally, he, here in New York, in the New York of the book, I should say, uh, 
Maff the dog runs into uh, a cat who's uh, French and speaks in Alexandrians, yeah. which is a form you hardly ever hear in English now, the 12-beat line. And so I was concerned that, because it sounds very French even in English, because there's a sort of hangover at the end of each line that's kind of wrong to the English ear. You know, the beats don't quite work out in English, but they do in French. And, but, I, but I wrote them in English uh, with, with the right measure just as a way of trying to convey to the reader again that absolutely particular, definite tone that that cat would have. Yeah, so it seems to me that really the only artistic truth to be found in this book are among the animals. Meanwhile, you have the humans here who are busy trying to deconstruct things and theorize and classify and uh, attempt to almost put it on their social calendars. Well, you make it sound much more coldly intellectual than I think it is. I mean, this is actually a sort of, it may be a shaggy dog story, but yeah. it's a tale. You know, it's a, it's, it's a story. And this dog had a certain picaresque journey through life. Um, sure, he loves ideas and he's interested in them. And he encounters a lot of humans who also uh, come into contact with ideas, but, but they also don't. I mean, what people like Frank Sinatra and Marlon and a lot of those actors are doing is not thinking that much. They're, they're behaving rather uh, instinctively a lot of the time. And Maff is observing their instinctive, sometimes bad characters at play. And he's commenting on it and drawing the reader's attention to it. But it seems to me, I mean, one of the delights about this book is the way it's, it's found a, vo a voice in more languages than any of my other books. The story of a, of a chatty, uh, self-defeating individual through uh, capitals and kings, palaces and gutters. That is the classic um, mode for the picaresque, and he fulfills it almost to the letter. Yeah, but a picaresque doesn't have what I'm observing, which is this sort of conversation about you know how we express something artistically. I, I'll give you another example for my, my theory here. The book really takes on the idea of what it is to tell a joke as well, which is interesting in light of the fact that you are taking this comic dog as the narrator. Mm. Uh, just to give you some examples, you have a situation where when someone tells a joke, a great number of Americans have a tendency to say, that's funny, while Europeans have a tendency to laugh, who <laughs> Moff observes. Frank Sinatra, early in the book, threatens, I'll give him joke. Yeah. Uh, he can't even laugh at it. He has to go ahead and, and, and take the actual... He has to categorize it to yeah, some degree. Yeah. Um, you also have Moff observed that Marilyn had a sensitivity to jokes and moral drama that would have delighted the chiefs of psychoanalytic Vienna. Now, by referencing how these characters react to jokes, it's almost as if you're running the risk of diffusing the actual joke of the book itself. And, I, and, and that's what, I, what I'm curious about. You say that this is a shaggy dog story, and yet I perceive... I perceive something that's 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 going a little bit more. That's kind of testing the reader to some degree. Should well, you laugh at this is. or should you is. categorize? The, yeah. the, the answer to your question is the book hopefully is doing both. Yeah, it's operating on a level of some simplicity as a as a narrative, and yet seeded there and threaded through the commentary is an opportunity for that uh, a much darker purpose. Uh, that's to say that the narrative is reflected back on itself and doesn't for me anyhow, I may be wrong about this, but it doesn't for me make uh, Woody Allen's films less funny, that they're self-consciously uh, funny sometimes, um, or uh, 
any number of classic uh, comedians, in fact, social comedian like Jane Austen, for example, is often very aware of the social nuances behind the talk and the modes of, of speech and behaviour, but it doesn't stop them from being funny. She can both describe it and think it. She can evoke it and uh, represent it in, uh, in theoretical terms as well. Um, we're probably much more squeamish about that in the West than, than uh, uh, sorry, in, in English than we are, say, in France, where a novel would carry out both those functions simultaneously without blinking. Yes. You know, and certainly elsewhere too, in fact. It's a, it's a cornerstone of the magic realists, I suppose. Yeah. The currently unfashionable magic realists is that they they were able to both uh, invoke magic and discuss magic yeah. at the same time. Um, I like all that. So it's almost post-postmodern or it's evoking that magical realism and postmodernism that was then in vogue in 1960 to some degree. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, you're just before John Barth's The Sotweed Factor, or roughly right around there. Um, yeah. You're just before the great onrush of Borges and, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez are, are in, in, in the wings just about. Get it. Well, I mean, when he goes to Mexico, Marf, the dog, in the book, yeah. he really begins to become super sensitive to, to the notion of magic and wonder. He feels he's come home. And that was me preparing the reader's mental landscape for the possibility that there is a kind of openness to the idea of fictionality in that region of the world, which would make a dog like Marf intensely comfortable. Yes. And it's that kind of book, you know, you, your tendency, without prejudice, might be to pull it back towards a, a central realist strain, but he would find it very natural to resist that yeah. and to, to reach always for something inexplicable. I wanted to go back to the critics. You had mentioned we once lived in a time, not just here in America, but also in Britain, where critics actually mattered. Um, one critic you didn't name, rather interestingly, and largely because he's been forgotten, but he does appear in the book, is Dwight McDonald. Oh, yeah. And um, I'm wondering if for every critic who appeared in the book, you indoctrinated yourself in, into several volumes of their criticism before ensuring that they made their appearance in the book. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, I say it for fun, although it's not entirely untrue. Um, but this was this was a method-written book, yeah. much as a method actor might go about preparing for a role. I went about preparing for this uh, novel over 10 years by uh, deeply investing um, in the writing and thinking of the people who would be walking across my pages. So Dwight MacDonald, uh, I made it my business not only to absorb his writing, he's only in a, a couple of scenes, yeah. But I wanted to make sure that in that party scene in New York, the intellectuals party at Alfred Kazin's on Riverside Drive, which is the kind of party he did have, that I wouldn't only absorb the books written up until that moment by every person in the room, but would also talk to people who knew the characters and do some old-fashioned pavement-pounding research yeah. to, to get it right for the reader. I wanted, in a sense, that party scene to be both vivid Dickensian social realism and also at some level a commentary on the ideas then current and then alive in the Cold War um, of the time. Yeah. That took a lot of absorbing myself into 
their world. And for me, that's always worth it. I mean, Susan Sontag's in the room, you know, Dwight McDonald's in the room, uh, Norman Poderetz is there, Lillian Hellman is there, the Trillings are both there, Marius Bewley is there, Frank O'Hara is there, Alan Ginsberg, you know, you've got a real panoply of, uh, they're the major figures, there are more minor ones, Ted Solitoro, if you watch in uh, magazines, saying partisan review crowd, you know, I threaded it through as accurately as I could, but the comic dimension comes from the fact that they're talking about themselves and their work and their ideas in their own voices and sometimes in sentences borrowed from their own work. Yeah. Now, in terms of Trotsky, who Moff really admires, mostly as a literary critic, it would seem, mm. um, how, did, how did that interest come about? Oh, that was very, uh, that was very personal. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, what you do as a novelist is that you marry uh, sometimes very, very personal concerns of yours to much more universal ones or you find particularities out in the world that kind of uh, dovetail with these spaces you have made inside yourself. Just all clicks in like Lego. Yes. Um, and for me, um, uh, Trotsky uh, was an interest of my childhood, an interest of so many of the Scots that I admired growing up, the trade unionists, a lot of the people who had political, a political mindset and an imagination for world decency and order an ambitious, too ambitious uh, perhaps too limited way of looking at the world as it turns out but they, def they definitely had conviction and they had heart and they were artists, many of them and I, so that was just, that grew out of my own consciousness and I just gave it to Math. Yeah. Um, I wanted him to have uh, have a deeply Scottish element to him and, and those people that he grew up with in the farm in Scotland at the beginning of his life uh, were Trotskyists, and they would have been too, yeah. uh, Red Clydesiders, as they're called. Well, I should also point out that Moff does note that Trotsky would have made a great interior decorator, and <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the decorating motif, so to speak. Uh, you have uh, <laughs> this line, decoration is all about personality and history, the precise business of making, discovering, choosing the conditions of lying and placing them just so, which that is, for Moff, why Trotsky would be just so perfect at, at representing the universe, whether it be literary criticism or whatnot. Later on with Mrs. Murray, you have uh, Moff note that interior decoration was a kind of religion. So it's almost as if he's, uh, he's cognizant to some degree of the opiate. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to ask around how much of your own fiction writing involves such interior decoration. I hadn't in the past. I discovered that yeah. facility with this book. Yeah. You know, you grow as a writer through the years, hopefully, with any luck, with the help of God, <laughs> from book to book. Um, not literally God. I could have said dog, for example. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. You grow from book to book in your sense of what's possible. You live with the myth of your own potential all the time. The unfulfilled myth of your own potential. Yeah. If you're a writer or a artist of any sort and one day um, you, you see that something new has arrived in your sense of the world or in at this point the recording unit ran out of battery life oh well the conversation is at an end the tissue box is empty no coffee for my cream Dogs howl in the alley 
crazy women scream Some kids shout from their pickup truck They're stoned on life and fear Fifty radios playing in this street But I'm still hardly